Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes, from industry disruptors to new investors to emerging markets to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are very interesting. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-shifting technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about real estate investment in Europe. Now, as we record this, we are still in the midst of the COVID pandemic. This has presented some real challenges to commercial real estate of the simple fact of people physically being together in a building under one roof. And this, in turn, in addition to the urgent social and health issues, has presented economic challenges to rent models, to occupancy rates, and many of the conventional metrics that are historically used uh, to evaluate the real estate portfolio. So how is COVID affecting this market and the overall commercial real estate landscape? Take a look at Europe, which is ahead of the curve compared to the U.S. in many respects, and you might be surprised at how resilient the market actually has been. Consider sale leasebacks, an investment model under which an investor buys a real estate asset and leases it back to the occupant under a long-term lease. This allows the occupant or tenant to generate some liquidity, pour it back into their business operations, while giving the real estate investor a steady income stream. This is a classic real assets income play, and it has proven robust amid larger shifts and dynamics for brick-and-mortar commercial properties, as well as the various challenges posed by the ongoing pandemic. For insight into what's happening in sale leasebacks, I will look to an industry pioneer, listed real estate investment trust W.P. Carey. Almost 50 years ago, W.P. Carey helped popularize the sale leaseback model in the U.S. and again in Europe more than 20 years ago. Today, it has investments and deep local networks in 20-plus European countries with a global enterprise value of $16 billion. As one of Europe's most diversified investors, it is faring well. The company reported 99% of rent collections in September with the sale leaseback model providing a means for companies seeking liquidity to put their real estate assets to work. I'm very honored to be joined today by their European Executive Director, Christopher Mertlis. Chris, thank you for joining Investable Universe today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure. So first, let's start with maybe a history or a brief overview of the sale leaseback market in Europe since, let's say, the great financial crisis. I think that's a that's a good starting point, right? Absolutely. And from one crisis to the other, so to say. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the European sale leaseback market really, um, I'd say, started maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But the concept originates really from the US, uh, where, in fact, WP Carey was the pioneer something like five decades, uh, six decades ago, uh, in providing this kind of financing solution. And it really is more of a financing solution than a real estate play. Uh, and we can address that a little bit more in detail later, what I mean by that, mm -hmm. um, really pioneered that concept. And to date, uh, what we see in Europe, it, it's very much still a growing market. It lacks the U.S. by, by quite a bit in its mm -hmm. prevalence, availability, uh, and due to several key reasons, whether it's um, different jurisdictions. Uh, it's much harder to transact in Europe than it is in the U.S. from a structuring perspective, from a legal framework perspective, um, obviously languages, language barriers, different cultural attitudes towards selling real estate. Mm -hmm. um, so really what we've seen in Europe over the last decade since the great financial crisis uh, is a maturing of the market. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the concept of the sale and lease bag, which maybe you know, a decade, decade and a half ago was relatively less known, is, is certainly or has proven to be 
um, something that is useful for corporates, uh, not only in times of financial distress as we see it today, mm -hmm. uh, but more broadly as one of many tools that companies can utilize in their you know, financing options, the tool chest, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, so if the market has become more professional, uh, the market has grown, um, there's more uh, a larger acceptance of this particular financing tool in the market. Um, and it's an exciting time to be structuring certain these banks in Europe. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a good time to be active in this market. Sure. So as I had understood it, the sale leaseback model uh, has, it was really picking up in areas, for example, like uh, uh, grocery anchored real estate, um, attracting, for example, pension investors or, or large private funds. Um, has that, and this, and this was even prior to, to COVID, have you noticed uh, this this trend accelerating or even slowing down since since COVID. What's been what's been the effect of the pandemic on this model in particular? Sure, it's it's, it's interesting what we've seen since COVID really hit the world in in Q1 this year. Um, on the one side, the last decade, and again going back to the Great Financial Crash, we've seen an ongoing reduction in yield, unprecedented central bank policy sure. uh, and mon monetary policies and just yields compressing, compressing, compressing. And mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of hunger and appetite for, for income from investors, mm -hmm. whether it's yeah. pension funds, whether it's insurance companies or other large institutional investors or, or private individuals. Mm -hmm. So the, the desire for long-term predictable income um, well, while it's always been there, I think given the low yielding environment that we're in, has just become even more acute. And so there's been that big push in that direction over, over the last several years. Um, and certain assets and certain types of properties do lend themselves more to that type of transaction, that kind of structure. Mm -hmm. uh, structure. So from the perspective of, you mentioned specifically retail here, mm -hmm. um, it's a bit difficult. The, the retail market has been evolving tremendously over the last decade in response to what we've seen you know, with, with e-commerce. And sure. it's a natural progression. And that's something that has certainly accelerated even further with COVID. But I wouldn't point towards COVID as the key trigger in the developments that we're seeing. I think there are more larger underlying structural changes that we're seeing in the retail world. But even within retail, I wouldn't put it all into one basket. There are very, very different kinds of dynamics at play when we're talking about a food proximity retail store compared to what might be a high street clothing shop. Um, they work based on very different metrics and often in my, you know, they might be put into one bracket retail. But really the underlying drivers and how they might respond to um, something like COVID or more broadly to times of economic distress is very, very different. Uh, it's much more nuanced from the perspective of are we talking discretionary spending? Are we talking essential spending? Um, are we talking proximity? Uh, these kinds of things make a real big impact in that assessment and specifically when we're talking retail. But more broadly speaking, with COVID, with that onslaught in the first few months, uh, as there was an increased amount of uncertainty in the world, what is going to happen, you know, how bad is this really going to be, the first time really countries experienced a lockdown. Um, yes, companies certainly did look much more closely at their real estate that they own as a way of potentially raising some needed capital, um, mm -hmm. retail certainly not being an exception here. Yep. 
Uh, okay, so let's talk a little more about, you, you know, you had mentioned that one difference between uh, Europe and the United States is that there is greater variability in Europe. I mean, there are different languages. There may be different norms. There may be some different regulations depending on where uh, in the in the continental landscape you are. Can you talk a little about the about opportunities in terms of uh, different regions or sectors? I mean, what looks what looks good to you right now? What and where? So, yeah, absolutely. So from a what and where perspective, mm-hmm. I don't really look at it as the true perspective. This year, I want to target a specific sector or a specific asset class. Mm-hmm. I think from a slightly different angle, which is I want to find properties that have truly mission critical properties for the tenants that we want to work with. Mm-hmm. So rather than looking at it from a perspective of what asset class should I target, I look at it from a perspective where can we work with a company where we can transact with properties that this company considers to be truly mission critical. Mm-hmm. And it's a slightly different perspective, um, and, and, but it makes a whole lot of difference in certain times of distress, such as the one we find ourselves in now. Mm-hmm. And I consider that to be one of the key contributing factors why in September we ended up collecting something like 99% of, of rent, mm-hmm. um, whereas other players, competitors might be seeing much lower rent collection numbers because the focus on that criticality argument might not quite have been there. Mm-hmm. And in the, same, in the same view, you mentioned geographical allocation. Again, one of the beauties of the business model, of the sale and lease business model, is that it is incredibly portable. And whether we're talking about a highly mission-critical property with a company in the north of Norway or in the south of Spain, mm-hmm. again, being able to capture those different geographies and taking aside maybe legal, structural, and obviously country-related differences, it doesn't make too much of a difference. Really, what you look for is credits that you feel comfortable in that they will be able to make those rent payments for many years and decades to come, but that you really seek assets that are truly mission critical, wherever they might be located or whatever type of asset class that might ultimately end up being. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about, uh, you know, looking at mission critical assets, uh, you know, in different parts of Europe. I've heard some investors call this an extremely exciting time to be an investor. What's your, what's your view on this as you, as you take a look at mission critical properties? Do you find that this is a, a more exciting time to be an investor than it would be if we were, if there were not, for example, a crisis, an economic crisis going on? Does this create exciting opportunities for you? I mean, exciting is a is 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 an interesting word because it yeah. can be a blessing or a curse depending on who you ask. Um, right. an, an exciting time could mean something very good, but to someone else might mean something very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, what we're seeing in the market right now it clearly is exciting. There's a lot of structural changes happening across all kinds of asset classes. We've experienced now. Let's take office for an instance. We've experienced mm-hmm. now really a time period of of months on end where a large proportion of the office-bound population has been working remotely. Mm-hmm. We've never had that. It's one big social experiment. Yeah. And no one really knows what long-term impact that will have on the use of office. Right. Uh, I, I don't think anyone expects that offices are going to disappear altogether. That would be mm-hmm. unrealistic. But yeah. on the flip side, I think it would be unrealistic to expect that this completely global, unprecedented experiment is not going to have an impact on the office environment and the office markets. Yeah. Um, likewise, when we go back to the worlds of logistics and industrial, mm-hmm. um, we're seeing that as people's 
work remotely, work from home. Uh, there's a lot more online shopping, a lot more. Again, that's just been spiking up again, which mm-hmm. was already a natural trend that has been happening for years. I, I don't think anyone today can still say that online shopping is a novelty thing and it's sure. something unprecedented. But again, the acceleration of it is is like unprecedented in response to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back also to the point of retail, certain retail subgroups have been suffering tremendously with right. shops being closed, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. yes, it truly is an exciting time uh, and there's a lot happening in the real estate world. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're keeping our eyes open and we, we're prepared to deal with whatever the, the market sort of throws at us. Sure. I, can I ask you a follow-up question about about office space? Because I've heard I've heard differing points of view from different uh, different institutional investors. Let's say I've heard you know some people say that you know the office is never really going to go away. So, similar to what you had just what you had just mentioned, office work is never going to go completely away. There are all kinds, of, especially when you're talking about corporate office space and financial services. There's all kinds of compliance issues that come up. You can't just have people working remotely for a long term period. I've also heard some in, institutional investors say that what you need in the age of COVID or whatever, you know, heaven forbid, pandemic comes next, what you need is more space, not less. So that what we will see is instead of, you know, rather than a disappearing, you know, disappearing office space, you will have maybe a rollback of uh, of certain uh, office efficiency measures that had people co-working or working in closer quarters than than previously. Where do you come down on the issue of, of the office real estate market in Europe from what you can see? There's a few interesting things here. I mean, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. humans, we are social, we're social beings and we, sure. we like to be around other people. And mm-hmm. I think some of these very, very pessimistic views of just offices basically going to be, you know, going to disappear. I, I don't agree with that. And mm-hmm. we want to be around other human beings and it's just part of what we are as humans. And yeah. so that, that social element of the office is certainly being missed uh, and in certainly some roles more may- maybe than in others. But broadly speaking, that's something that is being missed and we're not going to, we don't want to be without that once we hopefully return to a world of, of, of normality. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, I agree from the perspective of maybe at this point right now, generally speaking, there might be fewer people per you know, in an office, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you want to make sure given all the social distancing rules, uh, you, you will probably end up you will end up having a larger space per person in office. Actually, the occupancy and the use uh, is actually different than maybe just the occupancy numbers uh, would would show. Um, Then looking at maybe from a European context, something that I seem to have witnessed a little bit over the last weeks and months is the different speed at which certain cities might have responded Mm -hmm. and certain office markets within these cities would have responded to that crisis. Mm-hmm. And while certainly the last decade and the big, big metropolis cities in Europe would have been the big winners, they tend to be now, and this is, of course, a big of a generalization here, mm-hmm. they tend to be the ones struggling the most um, really? from a transportation perspective, uh-huh. from a recovery perspective. Um, if, if in a medium-sized city and the majority of employees drive with their cars to the office, uh-huh. it's a different thing if you are in a city such as London, where you heavily rely on local public transport. Mm-hmm. So while the big success story of, of the cities would have been the metropolis for the last 10 years, mm-hmm. right now it seems to be the somewhat smaller, medium-sized cities that are more easily able to scale up and, and close down as well um, mm-hmm. in response to COVID. But again, the main thing I really consider important to point out here is we're very early on in this, 
and mm -hmm. substantial long-term implications, um, they will need just a lot more time really to become clear. Okay, so just to sort of clarify, this is not uh, what you're what you're noticing in terms of uh, you know relative resilience of smaller European cities that are not as dependent upon mass transportation like London, for example. That's not necessarily indicative of a longer term trend. I mean, this could be a blip, right? Is that absolutely? I mean, and, and I don't think anyone knows at this point how, how quickly right. we would adapt this. Will we find a vaccine, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and how that right. will work? But, mm -hmm. but again, it brings it back to the you know to your earlier point. It's an exciting time. And sure. I mean, <laughs> That, that just adds to that excitement. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I did want to circle back uh, to what we, what you had mentioned earlier about retail and, and really just the acceleration of trends that had been long underway in the retail space. E-commerce is nothing new. It's simply gotten more, you know, popular or simply become more prevalent as we've as we've gotten into COVID. But do you think that a sale and leaseback model could be a kind of saving grace for brick and mortar retail? Are you seeing this as a potential lifeline for traditional retailers? Like that this is the if you want to have a physical shop location, the way to do it is through a sale and leaseback model. I don't think sale and leasebacks for that is just the the, the be all and all kind of solution. Mm -hmm. uh, fundamentally when it comes to a sale and lease bag, what we care about is the, the long-term, I mean, we're a long-term investor and any mm -hmm. sale and lease bag investor, by the definition, it should think long-term. Mm -hmm. And a sale and lease bag should not be considered as a, as a quick capital injection to stem mm -hmm. against a real underlying shift in, in, in the world. And yes. so I think looking at it from a perspective of a, as the, the solution for brick and mortar retail, I, I don't think that would be the right way to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, Brick and mortar retail is going to change and has been changing, whether there are sale leasebacks or not. And I don't think there is any, there's any, no need in denying it. But um, so I don't see the sale leaseback as the, the, the saving grace for brick and mortar retail. Mm -hmm. And again, I always have to come back to the point of what does the sale leaseback investor like us? What do we look for? It's that element of criticality of, of a store of an asset, and it is truly that long-term approach. So yeah, it's not the saving grace. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about the what the European deal pipeline is looking like these days? It's interesting. I mean, from a from a deal pipeline perspective, there we started into the year well. It's just any any you know above average, I would say, from a deal flow into Q1. But then actually, once COVID hit, there was just so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So much uncertainty in this world from uh, the dislocations we saw in credit markets obviously in the real estate world, in the corporate world, in everyone's private lives, mm -hmm. um, that, that just very much created this general wait and see and kind of, you know, almost in shock, just what is happening is around us attitude. And, and that filtered through to the real estate world. So mm -hmm. I'd say until the sort of middle of the summer, quite frankly, there wasn't, wasn't all happening because people just didn't really know how to price, what to price and where we are going. Mm -hmm. um, but at least from our perspective at WB Carry, based upon a few things, one of which certainly being our very, very strong rent collection numbers mm -hmm. and seeing how our approach in selecting mission critical assets and corporate credit underwriting has mm -hmm. held up incredibly well throughout this crisis. I'd say since uh, middle of the summer, late summer, we've been very much back in, in, in deal mode, so to say. Mm -hmm. uh, the pipeline, it, it, it looks promising. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, again, it, it, there's, I'd say there was a lot of discussion as well during the summer periods of companies um, considering sending these specs as a financing tool. Mm -hmm. um, but 
in the same way, I think a lot of that initial excitement about it with the recovery of the world, with the recovery of credit markets, mm -hmm. might have maybe not quite come to fruition or would have been delayed to a degree. But overall, um, it's looking good. And this, again, needs to be seen within the context of what is inherently in Europe a growing market. Mm -hmm. And what is inherently increasingly becoming aware, as, a, as I mentioned, a tool for corporates to raise capital, whether it is in COVID times or in normal times. Do you see any signs or any hazards associated with excessive concentration of ownership of European assets by specific funds. I mean, there are very, you know, they're very well capitalized private equity firms that have been very, uh, shall we say, publicly bullish on certain sectors of the real estate market like logistics, and they just buy up everything, it seems. Do you see that as a, does that create any, does that present any challenges to the European market? Or have you, maybe you haven't observed that similarly. Can you talk a little bit about that? From a, from a broader perspective, I don't see yet such a large degree of concentration risk. I think the points you raise are valid in the sense that there are some very large names that would have raised some very, very large funds um, and that have a lot of financial firepower to deploy that. And in many instances, even kind of pressure to deploy it, which right. again, can be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think now looking back on the say the least black market, we are yet witnessing that kind of concentration among a few names that really would just dominate the market in what we do. Mm -hmm. And again, the least black market itself needs to be seen in a slightly different context. It's more nuanced. It's more of a credit income play rather than some of these transactions that we're seeing or some of these large funds that are really investing for the real estate and they're just buying up for the real estate. Mm -hmm. Same thing is somewhat different. The, the credit element, the credit and the corporate underwriting aspect takes a much larger role in these types of deals. Mm -hmm. I think where I see maybe a little bit more of a potential source of problems is simply that large quantity of capital chasing, by definition, a limited set of opportunities. Right. And there are certain trends, and people like to jump sometimes onto trends, and mm -hmm. logistics certainly is the big trend at the moment. Yeah. It has been for a few years. Mm -hmm. And the resolve of some investors, certain investors to keep jumping onto that trend or even deploying more capital into that strategy mm -hmm. uh, has probably only been strengthened in resolve due to COVID. Right. Um, but then goes back to the one of the key fundamentals in investing, you can turn you can turn any good deal into a bad deal by overpaying. Mm -hmm. And in certain corners of the logistics world, in my opinion, that is already what we're sort of seeing. Mm -hmm. um, but fundamentally to go back to your question about a specific concentration risk in the specifically in the, in the city spec world, um, not something that, that I'm particularly witnessing. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of follow up on what, what you said about turning a, a good deal into a bad deal, I, I did want to follow up on the market for logistics and warehouse real estate, which is like, the, I mean, what, it seems like the, the, the never ending long. I mean, is there anything that can stop this upward trajectory? I mean, is, in, in valuations and logistics related real estate? I mean, what are you, what's, your, what's your take on that? I think the short answer is yes. I mean, can something <laughs> end a long-term yeah. trend? Absolutely, yes. Sure. And and again, slightly different nuanced angle that we look at it, but mm -hmm. if we go more broader from the general logistics market in Europe in the broadest possible sense, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's certainly a lot of um, hunger for these low-income deals and generally logistics, even outside of the low-income space. Mm -hmm. And 
in many instances, when we witness and see these types of transactions close, one needs to assume that whoever closed those deals had to assume some very aggressive rent growth assumptions and whatnot to justify those mm -hmm. deals. And yes, I mean, if, if fundamentally those economic realities don't materialize or these economic projections don't materialize, um, even a long-term trend can, can stop. So um, it still is an exciting market. We very sure. much like logistics as an investor, given its critical nature, given its criticality. Yeah. We, we don't like logistics for sake of liking logistics because yeah. other people like logistics. Yeah. We like logistics and we like industrial because these are often the types of properties where it is not necessarily most easily, but most demonstratively, most, most quantifiably possible to show that these are truly mission-critical assets, which goes back to that very core thing that we look for in any of our deals. Yeah. Maybe um, talking about the logistics trade, okay, so it's not just a matter of, like, uh, taking a look at a, a last-mile logistics warehouse in Scandinavia and assuming that, well, that must be mission-critical, so we're going to buy it. Can you talk maybe a little about uh, what, give an example of a, of a mission-critical type asset that you would be looking at that sort of looks, that goes beyond just that uh, sort of offhand uh, warehouse trade? Absolutely. So it could be things such as looking at a particular light industrial facility and, mm -hmm. and structuring a certain lease back for that. Mm -hmm. Asking questions that just go beyond, okay, what is this the rent of this building relative to market rent? I mean, that's one way to look at it, but mm -hmm. the way it's sort of the angle where we don't try to assess elements of criticality is, fine, this particular production side, what proportion of a company's revenue does that represent? What a proportion of a company's EBITDA that they generate? How, for instance, expensive would it be to relocate this facility? How difficult would it be? Are there any restrictions on, on, on actually moving such a facility? What about the local employees? Would that be difficult to move to another place? So things that go beyond the pure real estate world that mm -hmm. kind of blend our corporate credit underwriting with trying to assess a site's criticality. Mm -hmm. um, but that could apply to many properties for a retail site, for instance how have sales been trending for that particular location? What's the EBITDA over rent coverage? What's the effort rate, which is a key metric to look at for retail stores? Um, how does that compare with other competitors nearby? Or if you're talking about a, a, an R&D facility, like these kinds of things that are not necessarily rooted purely within the real estate world, but more firmly sit within the corporate and business and underwriting world, that's what we try to blend into our, our assessment of, it, of what makes it a critical asset, what makes it a good deal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that that's contributing factor in many ways to why we're seeing such higher collection numbers. Mm -hmm. So, as you were as you were talking about uh, mission criticality and site criticality and secular growth trends, the th uh, what what came to mind were uh, the emerging technology real estate types like uh, data centers and like uh, cell tower assets that in the U.S. and in 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 many cases are organized as real estate investment trusts. Um, are you seeing? Is there any phenomenon toward uh, or any trend towards sale leasebacks in digital real estate properties like that? It's a good question. And, and again, the U.S. market is somewhat ahead of us there. Um, mm -hmm. In the U.S., you would see a lot of REITs focusing specifically on specific sub-sectors, sub-asset classes, right. such as cell phone towers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. In European cell-leaseback space, it still remains a more broad and diversified approach mm -hmm. where the selection of criticality, credit, those are the key drivers. Mm -hmm. um, 
but there has not yet been a case of fragmentation within the Sinhalese space to specific focus uh, like entities that look only at specific subsectors. Mm -hmm. Maybe that will happen. Um, not quite seen that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but if if you know, certainly something we've seen we've seen occurring in the US, and you bring up certain assets such as data centers again, a very specific type of asset, mm -hmm. uh, cell phone towers. Um, we're seeing more and more in Europe also now are in specific R&D and production locations which are relatively specialized right. um, as a sort of, sort of emerging trend that we're witnessing in, in reshoring, partially due to more automation, right. partially now also again accelerated due to COVID and, and just a noticeable vulnerability in supply chains and in response to that. So, yeah, I mean, we have not yet seen that specialization, but will it occur? Might be, might be. Yeah. What about um, what about uh, uh, biotech real estate properties? I know that's been an area where some private equity investors in the U.S. have been, you know, assembling long positions for for quite some time. The you know the biotech space being very specialized and wanting to have proximity to R and D clusters, maybe in university towns, et cetera. Do you see that at all in your markets? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, we really, really like R and D locations, not necessarily mm -hmm. biotech or chemistry or other kind of high-end engineering and, and applied sciences kind of uh, uh, parts, we very much like it. I mean, an R&D location, it's difficult to top that from a criticality perspective. If if you've got a location, you've specifically fitted out for your purposes uh, and it really meets the uh, criteria, it meets the sort of requirements for your scientists, for your engineers, uh, and these sites often are responsible really for the growth, the future growth of a business and some of the most important assets a company in, in, in these sort of sciences can own makes it a very good candidate from a criticality perspective again for us. So we've acquired multiple R&D properties over the years and, and see us certainly pursue that avenue further going forward. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked a little bit about cities in Europe and how uh, maybe second-tier cities are faring compared to uh, the, you know, the traditional big cities or capitals. Uh, can you talk about uh, whether you're looking at increasing your portfolio exposure to selected gateway cities? And, and if so, which cities? I mean, which, which parts of Europe, if you can say, <laughs> are, are exciting to you right now? I think Europe as a whole is exciting. It's an exciting continent, a continent for us to, to act in and operate in. Mm -hmm. And we've got a presence in something like 20, 25 European countries. So mm -hmm. really our exposure is, is pan-European. Um, gateway cities, gateway locations, yes, obviously that, that's always interesting, but it sort of goes back to the fundamental, what do we look for in a deal? And, and kind of how sector and location agnostic we really can be due to our focus on long-term income, criticality of an asset, rather than I need to now this year invest a specific amount of money into a specific asset class within a specific geography. That's, that would be looking at the, the wrong way around. So we're not trying necessarily to target specific gateway cities. It's more against selecting a specific type of transaction that meets the criteria that we have. Okay. So as if one crisis were not enough, we've got COVID going on. There's also Brexit happening. Do you have any comment on maybe your market outlook for the UK after, after Brexit, whichever, whichever way this is going to go? What are you, what are you observing or, or hearing from your clients? Brexit is, 
and it's kind of interesting um, that we're hearing it more again after we've had COVID in the news for so long. I was kind of looking forward to hearing a little bit about Brexit again. I was <laughs> forward not having had a, a, a Brexit headline. Yeah. Um, big question mark, naturally, for where that will end up. And I don't think anyone knows at this point in time. And time is really running out to agree a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main thing from my end, looking at Brexit as a whole and looking at how that interacts with our business mm-hmm. is that we've got the luxury of time. Right. What we do as an investor and WB Care's motto is even investing for the long run. And mm-hmm. that is generally what we do. We have the benefit of time. And I don't know whether Brexit next year is going to be bad. I don't know if it's going to be good in five years. No one knows. Mm-hmm. But the way we structure deals is that we're not reliant on that necessarily. So mm-hmm. whether it's bad for a few years and then it's good again, uh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But in either scenario, we want to make sure that we've got long-dated income, long income for mission critical assets with strong corporates that we feel comfortable having as a tenant, whether there's a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, or any Brexit in between, or no Brexit at all, which, mm-hmm. you know, while unlikely, is still a possibility, maybe. So... Yeah. That's really the main thing here is the luxury of time uh, as a long-term investor that we can hold on to these assets for many, many years to come. So we're not reliant on any short, medium-term uh, implications. So it sounds like Brexit has not has not fundamentally changed your view on, on the British market. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. It, it doesn't have fundamentally change our view on the market. And it might lead to, if there are some local real estate dislocations, it might need, lead to some interesting opportunities that we could look at more closely. But um, looking at the market as it stands today, looking at the pricing that we see in the market and the, mm-hmm. the, the transaction volumes, uh, at least right now it does not appear as if Brexit is a, a, a super concern on many investors' uh, radars. Mm-hmm. Now, just one final question to kind of wrap things up. As a as a listed real estate investment company, what can you say about the attractiveness of opportunities in the listed markets versus in the private space? Private versus public investor. I mean, from our perspective, WB Carey mm-hmm. is a publicly listed company. Okay. Uh, and as a result of that, we do have access to the capital markets mm-hmm. from an equity-raising perspective, from a debt-raising perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we consider that to be a key strategic advantage mm-hmm. uh, to have that available capital, to have the public markets uh, as, as a readily available capital source. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that plays also into one of our big strategic advantages in the current environment, um, which is being an all-equity investor. So mm-hmm. we can close transactions without being reliant on external third-party bank financing. And in the current environment, where there is a lot of uncertainty on, on deal closing and, and where the world is heading, working with a party that can close all equity uh, is a significant advantage compared to being reliant on uh, external financing uh, in order to close a deal. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Christopher Mertlitz from WP Carey. Some interesting opportunities happening in Europe, and it's, it's heartening to see that, that this uh, market is remaining resilient despite a lot of challenges in 2020. Thank you very much. That's all we got for Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst and you'll hear more from me next time.